Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Good morning, Glory America. It's you, you, and if you're a regular listener, you're saying, wait, it's not Friday. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue, and it does. It's a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue, not the last radio hour of the week, because we have to pick up the pace. We have to catch up to where we ought to be in the Hillsdale readers. So I asked Dr. Arn if he couldn't spare an extra hour this week early to get back on track, and he said yes, and he brought along Professor D.G. Hart, who's been teaching history at Hillsdale for a decade before that, he taught at Wheaton College and Westminster Seminary, so you know he's one of us. Dr. Hart, welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, I, I hope Larry didn't trick you into this. This is not uh, a lecture, but a robust conversation about what you've been teaching for years. I understand you've written a dozen books, Dr. Hart. Well, I have to do something with my life, uh, but I want to make clear, is Larry not with us? Am I oh, he's going here. Solo? Oh, he's okay. here. Oh, no, I just try and keep him in the background. You know, okay. it's very tough to keep Larry out, out of the room, so I try and just keep him over there on the side for a little bit. So he is with us. Dr. Hart, you were at Westminster. I have a good friend, Jim Sweets, there. I have been ta- I, I've lectured at Westminster. How did you end up at Hillsdale from Westminster and Wheaton? Uh, well, I lost a job in 2008, um, and I had, made, I had been working at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute in Wilmington and had gotten to know a number of faculty at at Hillsdale, including uh, the former provost, uh, Dr. David Whalen. And um, so they brought me out for a a guest uh, trial run, and I I fell in love with the place. And so I've been here relatively ever since. You know, Dr. Ron, I'm always amazed at how you collect people up there who happen to be great teachers. It's as though you all you intended that, unlike most of the colleges in America. Yeah, well, you can't uh, make your bones at Hillsdale College if the kids don't like to take your classes. And uh, we like uh, Daryl's wife, Ann, better than we like Daryl. But uh, <laughs> but uh, Daryl is a he, he's one of us very much. He's uh, he's done fabulous work here, and uh, he's not anything but a blessing. Well, we are going to get to Jonathan Edwards, but I I want to compliment whoever put together the Hillsdale. American Heritage Reader, which I'm holding in my hand. As I went through it to prepare for this this dialogue today, and I read the introduction to Jonathan Edwards, I learned more about the Enlightenment in Jerusalem and Athens than I had remembered from all those Gov 103 with Harvey Mansfield and everything at law school. This never comes up. Larry Arndt, i got to ask you to do a quick explanation of the phrase Jerusalem and Athens. And the reason being, our friends in Pittsburgh are going to say, what about us? The Steelers are pretty good, too. What do you mean by Jerusalem and Athens? Well, the Steelers have an old quarterback, and uh, (laughs) and Jerusalem and Athens are much older than that. Yeah. Uh, uh, So in, in, what what is the West? You have to wonder, what do we mean by the West? And what's odd about it is, it means something universal. In fact, it means two universal things that come together. And one is the idea of one God over all, all humans and all everything. And that comes from Jerusalem, and that's when it came. It came with the Jews, and that was a new idea. 
And so in, in Greece, then you have this annoying person, Socrates. And uh, what he said, it was, he got killed for it finally, was that he tried to understand what things are, to give an account of things. And especially the most important thing, the first and last thing, the good. What is it for a thing to be good? And that doesn't mean what is it for a thing to be good in Athens and a different thing to be good in Persia. What is the good? And that means outside the claims of the law, which is one of the reasons Socrates was killed. So if you if you compare uh, Jesus, who completed the story of the Bible, Christians believe, I believe, uh, with Socrates, they are both looking to heaven, looking to the eternal, looking to nature itself and nature's God to find a standard of truth. And that means that the West, which... It's the intertwining of those two things that make the West. And there are some tensions between them. But on the other hand, uh, I I believe, especially today, those tensions are greatly overstated. The truth is, we want to give an account of what's right for us. And that will lead us to an account. And this is, by the way, true both in Greek philosophy and in the the Christian Bible, and the Hebrew Bible. That will lead you to an idea of the perfect. And that's where the word God comes in. So that's what it is, I think. Professor Hart, do you want to elaborate on that at all? Athens and Jerusalem are sometimes in competition, but they are often colleagues. And at Hillsdale, I think that reconciliation is most advanced of anywhere that is an institution of higher education in America. Because you, you came out of Westminster and Wheaton, avowedly Christian institutions, and you now teach at an institution that is certainly full to the brim with Christians, but is not itself dedicated to any particular confession. Well, in some ways it plays off uh, what, if I can say, Larry, without getting too formal here, sorry, um, was saying about the tensions in the West. I mean, there are tensions in Christianity. We have um, a lot of Roman Catholics. We have a lot of evangelicals. We even have a lot of confessional Protestants, such as Lutherans, Presbyterians, um, Anglicans, and um, and then we even have Eastern Orthodox folks here. So we can't all assume the way I think it sometimes we were we were encouraged to assume at Wheaton, for instance, that we were all on the same page. We don't necessarily assume that. What what get, makes us on the same page, at least I understand it, is that we have this core curriculum uh, in the history department. We teach the core two core courses. In that, and that winds up giving a kind of coherence overall, and then we sort of, it's not as if we fit Christianity in around the edges, but we sort of, we still put it together with that core in view, and uh, there are times there are tensions, but I, but I think it keeps, keeps us all honest. Actually. And, and when you teach the American Heritage Course, uh, Doctor, do you, sp- do you linger over the Great Awakening, or is that something that you have to move through fairly quickly? Because I think the Great Awakening is is, a cr- is crucial to understanding America. Well, I'd like to hear you say more about that. I, I sometimes wonder if, um, in both of us, we cover the first and the second, and the way to do it, I mean, it has a certain significance for Christianity that I don't know that, that it has necessarily for the nation. Uh, or the, the emergence of the nation. And I think historians from Alan Heimert and Perry Miller even, uh, going back into the 50s and 60s, tried 
to understand the, the first great awakening as the run-up in a way to the American founding. Um, but I, but I, I think too that if you look at the founding, sort of more more narrowly, it's hard to see the signs of the, the awakening, except when it comes to very important issues of religious liberty, and what Jefferson and Madison were working with uh, for religious liberty in. Virginia, which was in some ways uh, codified then in, in the uh, First Amendment. Um, well, Professor Sklar, I, who taught me my early American political theory, used to teach that the Great Awakening took American activity out of the church and into the fields and into the public square and generally taught Americans to organize on a transcontinental basis. So that there was evangelical activity in Georgia that became evangelical activity in Massachusetts and that that was the connective tissue that allowed the highways of thought, the committees of correspondence to be established. What do you make of that theory, Doctor? Well, I, I think that really makes sense of the second Great Awakening. I have a former, uh, now deceased colleague, friend, Leo Rebuffo, who kind of tried to put a little bit of an edge on it by calling it the Pretty Good Awakening. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and I, I use that all the time, and I, get, I do get laughs like that sometimes because, it, you know, it, it plays around with how great the, the awakening was, but I think it makes a lot of sense of the Second Great Awakening, because I do think that was, that was very much a civilizing and nationalizing event in which Protestants of different denominations pulled together, went to the frontier, and, and tried to teach people. I mean, they already knew how to read, but give them apparatus to read, books to read, Sunday schools, um, churches, colleges, uh, Hillsdale itself is is partly an expression of that and um and i so i think the second great awakening was really important for uh, would you define terms for the audience in chronological before we go to the break oh sure um the second second great awakening i go roughly 1820 to 1840 although it carries beyond that even into the civil war some would say the civil war is the is the um culmination of the second great awakening but okay, and I first, and I the first Great Awakening is Jonathan Edwards, which we're coming back to at, right. after this break. And I actually I think Sklar's point of view was that George Whitfield was the first guy to travel the highways and byways and taught Americans to talk to each other via messaging. And yeah. that was her argument. And I I always thought it was a given. It's not a given, but we'll come back and talk about that. We'll get Doctor Arn's point of view on that. We are doing the Great Awakening, the first, and Jonathan Edwards this week. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. What are, are there dangers? What are they? Because it's useful means, yes, it can't be stopped because it's the, the, the companies, the next level agents doing the technological advances. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. A hundred years ago, we switched, switched over from artisan craftsmen making our things to assembly lines. And that was more efficient, it was more productive, but it changed how humans were in the world instead of having the furniture in your house made by the craftsman down the road and having that person have that job. We now have a different relationship and a different arrangement. The, the kinds of dangers that we want to look at with artificial intelligence are, are similar to other sorts of industrial automation type dangers. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu.
back, America. Chew Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest on this Hillsdale Law Dialogue, along with Professor D.G. Hart. Dr. Hart's been teaching at Hillsdale for 10 years after a great career at Wheaton and Westminster Seminary. We're talking about the first great awakening in Jonathan Edwards, but right before he went to break, and by the way, all things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu, and all prior dialogues, 300 of them or so, are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, what did you make of the theory of the great awakening being a door that opened the way for the founding to occur? Well, uh, if you look at it from the political point of view, you actually see, in my opinion, more clearly the importance of that thing. Because from the political point of view, the unprecedented thing that happened here first is that The idea was formed that you may not be governed except with your consent. And that meant that the king, with his glory and his golden carriage and his high birth, was not any more entitled to rule than Joe Blow on the street corner. Well, the Great Awakening and Christianity in general had very much to do with that. We read the Mayflower Compact, right? And when when they get ready to figure out how they're going to live together in this new world, they all have to join up. And, and see, that's the thing about Christianity that's somewhere in the heart of it, right? It, uh, uh, your salvation is personal. And, you know, you, you, ha- you have to believe and behave yourself the best you can, right? But, uh, in, you know, in Judaism it wasn't like that, you know, before Jesus and in Islam, it isn't like that exactly. So it, you have this religion that had come to see that uh, the rulers can't go to heaven for you. And then, on the other hand, there's a unity around all of those doctrines that, that is expressed with a fury. In, in, the great, in, in the great, those great awakenings, there are four, I think, but uh, some of them are more modern and not, may, may be worthy of the name. Uh, and the first one didn't nationalize because there wasn't a nation to nationalize. But it laid the ground, in my opinion, very much. And that meant, and see, Jefferson and Madison, they were on the far wing of the uh, separation of church and state, uh, which, which, by the way, is uh, th- there was no consensus about that at all at the time. And what, what the, the consensus of the Constitutional Convention was, was that only states could have established religions. And, and can, uh, can, I, can I ask both of you, my, my brief Steeler fan summary is that uh, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield brought the ability of Witherspoon to come, and Witherspoon brought Madison and Jefferson, even though he didn't teach Jefferson, so that there's an ABC sequence here. Uh, Larry, do you agree with that? I mean, it's a rough outline, but it seems to me clear in history. Well, we have an interest in thinking that the teachers are the creators of their students, but we actually know better than that. And, uh, and you know, those guys taught a lot of people, but they yes. weren't all like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Now, having said that, however, just think of this understanding that we have, we Americans have. I pray we can keep it, because it's under assault right now. We have the understanding that we are appointed by God as agents in the universe, each one of us. And we are accountable for how we perform our function, our delegated duty. 
And that is just a very different model of government than, for example, in, in Greece, too. We talked about Jerusalem and Athens. Uh, the, the Greek city, the polis, that was a much more... For example, you couldn't, you, you couldn't think of church and state in the polis. The gods were the gods of the city. And so the point is, in, in my opinion, and, and, you know, Christianity has and, and always been, is to this day, more common and more fervent than it is anywhere in Europe. And, and well, there's a reason for that. It's, it's, it's a component of the ideas of the regime. And the religious freedom thing that Daryl mentioned, the reason that's crucial is being as passionate, as devoted as we were to Christianity, we rend ourselves to pieces, except that there's this thing. You can all worship the way you want to. That's, and it's the pillar, actually. It's the pillar on which everything stands. We'll be right back. Welcome back, American Chew Hewitt. A special Hillsdale dialogue because we're galloping to catch up to where we ought to be. Dr. Arnold and I set out a project this year to, to cover the uh, fundamentals of American liberty. And part of that is in the work of Jonathan Edwards. And so we've drafted Professor Hart. Ten years, a doctor of uh, teaching up at Hillsdale, the Lantern of the North. Uh, Dr. Hart, Jonathan Edwards is best known for sinners in the hands of an angry God. He's also probably lesser known as being the most important American theologian. And in an era where we know who Aquinas and Augustine and Luther are, we also know, and Paul, of course, but we also know who Edwards is. Why is he different from everybody else of his era? Boy, that's <laughs> I wasn't ready for that question. Uh, but I would say, in part, it's because he uh, was reading so much, um, and it's it's an odd thing to think that he's on the frontier, and he has to worry about raids by Native Americans, um, and he, he eventually, in his career, becomes a missionary to Native Americans as well. So it's not as if it's a one-way street, but here you have, I mean, he's from a prominent family, but he's out there and he's reading all this, as much stuff in English, but also Latin, that he can get his hands on, and um, he he has a, an enormous effect through his uh, students, many of whom were apprentices with him, and, um, and he, there's just a sort of a continual revival, but we may be in the most... A concerted or longest revival of Edwards dating back to Perry Miller in the middle of the 20th century to the present. So he, he winds up hitting uh, a niche in among American Protestants or American thinkers for, for who, in some ways, you can't explain that. Well, um, right now at Hillsdale, we're having a conference on Jane Austen um, and her, her movies, movie adaptations of her. And it's, it's never clear in, in, in some ways, how she's going to catch on. She, she catches on later, and right now there's a big recovery of, of Austin in the movies. But a uh, similar thing goes on with Edwards at different points, and he just becomes this figure with whom people can um, uh, interrogate, receive answers. His moving at the end of his life to, to the College of New Jersey, modern-day Princeton University, is also part of that, but he really has a much stronger following in New England among the so-called um, Edwardsians. 
and and various figures keep him alive, and he has a pretty long run, even just within the um, Connecticut Congregationalists. Now, let me ask you specifically about a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. That is in the Hillsdale American Heritage Reader. I had not read it before last week when I was getting ready for this and the William Penn conversation we had last week. And, um, and I was struck that he's a sociologist before there was such a thing as sociology. Is that a fair statement, uh, Dr. Hart? Yes, and I would only qualify to say that in the Puritan tradition, there was a, a, a long um, sort of exploration of someone's religious experience in the interior life and journal keeping and diaries that was important, and Edwards is building on top of that. But by writing the way he does about these revivals in the 1730s, um, he... he calls attention to something that people and makes it public in a way that a lot of these journals and diaries had been had been private and they were later published but they weren't necessarily well read back then for the the wider public so edwards is sort of doing something that had been going on but then he it becomes i mean it's it's originally published i think in london and then in edinburgh and then in boston later so it becomes international even before say, George Whitfield shows up in, in 1739 and, and makes the awakening a transatlantic phenomenon. Now, it's, it's really remarkable. 300 years ago, it's almost 300 years ago, an American pastor in western Massachusetts is taking detailed notes on individual conversions for the purpose of what, Dr. Arndt? And why did you put this in and not sinners in the hand of the angry God? Dr. Arn is speechless. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, As a rule, the answer to the question, why is something not in there, is there isn't room. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, we want, you know, the the current edition and version of the History 2-course sequence, there's a textbook for each, Um, that was published after I came to the college. And I had a lot to do with that, and Mark Kaltoff, who's been the chairman of the department since, you know, since your grandfather was a kid. Um, and we spent a lot of time on things like that. What's the most representative? Um, and, you know, because here, just to, your readers, your listener, our listeners will be having the same problem. Uh, there's two tasks that have to be completed to become an educated person, and life is not long enough for either of them. Yep. And one of them is you have to survey. You have to see what all the stuff is. You have to look at all the ages. You have to look at uh, all of the at least important people. And the other is you have to know a few things deeply. And scholars are people, like Daryl, he fell in love with Jonathan Edwards. A long time ago, and he still is, right? And so he's a treasure because he has gone deep. Well, you need to, especially when you're getting your education, it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle and the pieces don't fit. You need a teacher to help you orient yourself as you go along, and then you'll end up, by the way, with your own understanding inevitably. But to, to make the picture... It's good, you know. I, you know, I personally think these dialogues are good, right? Because, you know, I learn from them. 
and I bet everybody else does too. And then the ones who spend some time with it and study more, they learn more deeply. I think we get a harpoon into people. And the harpoon we're going to get into them today is what the heck is a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God? Because I don't think anyone knows about this, Dr. Hart. I think everybody knows about educated people. Cleveland people know about sinners in the hands of an angry God. I don't think they know about a faithful narrative of the work of the surprising work of God. I didn't. I mean, do you find it to be a surprise to your students? Yes, uh, but and many students, for good or ill, don't don't know much about um, Edwards either. So, if if they have encountered him, it's whatever in literature anthologies, and, yep. and usually sinners is there. Um, yep. I think part of the significance, too, and I wasn't part of the department when we put this um, textbook together, but I think it does make the point about how dramatic the conversion experience was in the case of, uh, say, Phoebe Bartlett and the, the, the other woman who's in the, in the account. Uh, her name I'm forgetting right now. Um, but well, Phoebe is, is I was going to go to Phoebe because she's four years old. But right. the, uh, I've got the book in front of me, so I'll find the first uh, lady's name. And, and Abigail yeah, Hutchinson. Yeah. But let, yes. Let's go on Phoebe. A four-year-old becomes the subject of study of Jonathan Edwards. That is astonishing to me. It is. I, it, I, I actually struggle with it because I, if I were a parent, I, I don't have children, but and I would actually, my own personal religious background, if we can get personal. I walked the aisle as, at the age of five, so I can in some ways relate to Phoebe, but I was not going through anything like this, and it, it, it is disconcerting, and I and oftentimes students do feel like what's going on here, um, and I think it's also important to think in the longer haul of Edward's writing and his... So he was really surprised. So the, the word surprise in the, in the title is significant because he didn't expect this kind of awakening uh, from a series of sermons that he was preaching on, I believe, justification by faith alone. It, 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 was, it really was, he thought, uh, a work of, of uh, divine intervention. But by 1742, he writes a book on religious affections, and he then begins to try to be more specific about the good conversions distinguished from the bad ones and how to read the signs of those. So he may have been swept up in the moment at this point, um, and then comes what the reflections later to try to sort out the good from the bad. Um, and, and that also could be actually very revealing. I was in a course recently with, with uh, one of our theology professors talking about religious affections uh, even last week. Um, and in some ways, that, that's a textbook, a text that's known better. But this, I think this also captures the way in which the awakening started. I mean, Whitfield made it a, an international phenomenon, and people, historians, colonial historians will say that Whitfield was the first household name before George Washington that everybody knew him, which goes back to your point about connecting the colonies. But even before Whitfield started to preach and itinerate, uh, meaning he was a traveling evangelist, um, these kinds of revivals were happening in places like New Jersey, where, where Edwards was. And so this also gives 
a sense of that local expression of revival before it becomes intercolonial and inter international as it, as it were. In this, there is also clearly, we had a minute to the break, Doctor, clearly the idea of a battle underway. And this is very, uh, I'll call it primitive Christian, uh, not meaning stupid Christian, just early Christian, that there is a battle between good and evil, and it's fought in different places at different times, and it was particularly being fought in western Massachusetts when Jonathan Edwards was studying this congregation. That doesn't endure in American Christianity much anymore, I don't think. But do you think it no. defined Edwards? Yes, I do. But I, again, I think in some ways Puritanism was in decline in the 18th century. I mean, it had pretty much phased out by then as a kind of corporate social phenomenon. But the piety uh, did persist, and Edwards is a good expression of that. And, and the Puritans, uh, a lot can be said bad of them, but also this was part of their outlook, that they the world was full of spirits, both good and bad, and you, it was a constant battle. And it and does you had, reflect... You had to stay on your toes. Yeah. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Hart and Dr. Hart, what did Jonathan Edwards believe about the nature of Christ? On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. Honor is very important. Also, the classics are clear. It's not the highest order good, because it depends so much on the quality of the person who gives it. You know, the delight of a friend. I assert to everybody watching this, but they can tell for themselves, these are two very high-quality individuals. They live their life in a serious way. And so if they think something of one, one is pleased. If you take a being that knows more than they know, and is quicker than they are. And it says what you've taught it to say. It's very corrupting of one if he thinks that's honor. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. And subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hill with Dr. Larry Arn and Dr. D.G. Hart, who's got a new book coming out on the spiritual biography of Ben Franklin, which I'm looking forward to because he's always confused the heck out of me as to what he believed. <laughs> but, uh, Dr. Hart, I'm going to give you the first at bat and then Larry to, to finish up on the significant. What did Jonathan Edwards believe about the right relationship between a believer and Christ? Uh, can, can I, are you asking me? Is that yeah. fair? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. And, you can is, redefine is it, too, if you want. Was there something in the text that prompted you to ask that? Or Yeah, I, this... I, I think he's suspicious of Phoebe. I, and, and I wonder if he—you just hinted in the last segment that he became suspicious of affections. And I wonder if—and he almost is disappointed because it's fading when he writes this, and he sends it off to England. So I was wondering if he thought salvation once and done, or if you could gain and lose it. Um, I don't think, I mean, Edwards is a really hard guy to read as a theologian because he wasn't a systematic 
he was a systematic thinker, but he wasn't a systematic writer. So mo- most of his, even his uh, great theological works on the Trinity and free will later in, in his life were occasional in a way. They were long essays. They weren't the sort of dogmatic or systematic theology that of, a, of an Aquinas or um, later in the 19th century, someone like Charles Hodge at, at Princeton Seminary. Um, so, but I, I, w- I don't know the corpus incredibly well, but I tend to think he would have maintained the Calvinist view of things that, that you cannot lose your salvation, yep. the, the idea of the perseverance of the saints. But there is a sense, too, in which the fires of conversion the fires of uh, devotion subside. And so there is a, I mean, the, the Puritans were known as hot Protestants. And heat does cool off. How do you keep the heat going? And the, do you actually make people really tired by maintaining that heat? It's a hard thing to do, but he he's reflecting that there. But I don't think you lose it. You just lose the intensity, perhaps. And Dr. Arn, do you think if Edwards were to survey America in 2021, he would be, of course, he'd be aghast, but would he be surprised? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, first of all, I, I uh, slighted, I've been repenting of it ever since, the, the uh, latest Great Awakening in the, in the 20th century, because what popped in my mind was Billy Graham and if people have, there are two movies about Billy Graham, and they're both just tremendous. And that guy was something else. Yep. I mean, he, he was a tremendous man, and he had this very long career, and he prosecuted it beautifully, in my opinion, and he was a great world figure. And the fact that that has happened so recently, that, that uh, doesn't, that, that, that's a, another sign that, that can happen again, right? And I've been sitting here praying for it, in part, because look what's going on in the world today. The, the state is becoming the church. It is the arbiter of everything. It invades families. It tries to tell people in detail how to run even little colleges and K-12 through schools. And that's one reason they're so miserable, they're being commanded by people who don't know anything about it. And people have to rebel against that, because what, what Christianity does and what the American Revolution does and what Greek philosophy does is it invites you to be fully a human being and to live your own life, right? And so Edwards would be appalled by this, but I can't imagine that he would think that it was irreversible. I, uh, very well put. Last question to you, Dr. Hart. Um, is is there in Edwards' theology that you are familiar with in his writing a theory that that which is gone will come again, and once it gets here, it will go again? Well, I mean, my sense is that he was a post millennialist, meaning that he thought the outworking of redemption was continually advancing, and that was also part of the reason I think why. He saw these revivals and eventually the, the Great Awakening with Whitfield coming as uh, a progression to a point where at the end of this great outpouring of salvation, Christ would return. Um, so, um, so if to answer your question, uh, I, I think you have to keep that part of it in mind. He was in some ways 
progressive in the sense that he thought it was advancing despite this um, this conflict bef- between the forces of evil and the forces of grace, but that that the forces of grace were triumphing in the end, and you may have um, it wouldn't be flattening the curve. The curve would keep going up, as it were. You may have little little departures here and there, but still it would keep going. And so, so I, I guess that's the way I would read Edwards in relation to that question. All right, next week, George Whitfield, because the, the curve is not going up, and I think Dr. Arne has put his finger on it. Uh, if that which is gone will come again, we'll find out. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.